Welcome to Leading in a Climate-Changed World by Olivia Mythodrama. In our third podcast, we talked to Paul Dickinson, founder of the CDP, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project. The episode begins by discussing where we are with climate change and whether it's too late to act. Is there genuinely a time limit to work towards? And if so, how do we progress with a sense of urgency while at the same time allowing us space to innovate? Robin asks who holds the power to make a difference and the significance of the corporation as a political unit. While it's undeniable that there are organisations with more resources than many countries, are there still limits on what they can do based on their position within different industries? How do these organisations find a way to do things ethically when profit has always been the primary objective? Is there such thing as shareholder activism and how could this have a significant effect on deliverables for these corporates? They examine leadership and present examples of great leaders within existing organisations while questioning how people can be brave in different industries. They ask how leaders act when they come up against companies and individuals holding back from doing the right thing for the sake of convenience and profit. Robin and Paul discuss the role of marketing and present examples of where companies have been clever with developing business cases that work for consumers and the planet. Leadership is a key theme throughout, with a focus on inspiration and moving people to change their habits to be conscious of the environment. How do leaders motivate society to revolutionise global thought and discussion, and why the younger generation is vital in this movement, drawing inspiration from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Greta Thunberg. Let's hand over to Robin and Paul. So welcome everybody and welcome to Paul Dickinson in this podcast and part of our series Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's a great uh, joy to talk with you, Paul. I've known you for many, many years and for those of you who don't know Paul Dickinson, he founded CDP, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, in the year 2000 with a vision to help the global economic system operate within sustainable environmental boundaries and to prevent dangerous climate change. CDP manages a data platform that gathers data on greenhouse gas emissions, water usage, the drivers of deforestation from major corporations, cities, states, and regions around the world. It's seen really as the gold standard, I would say, of data collection. And the data reported through CDP is used by a global network of investors and purchasers, representing over $90 trillion, which is actually more than the GDP of the world. So a very significant player. Uh, doing very, very useful work for many years, and you've been the visionary founder and now the executive chair of CDP. So it's a great pleasure to spend some time with you. Pleasure is all mine, Robin. Maybe we could start with just a, a sense from you about where are we with climate change? Different scientists seem to say different things. Some people say it's already too late and we're now managing decline. Some people say we have 10 to 12 years. Some people say we have two to four years. What is your sense about what the data is actually telling us? Well, I think what, what, what's extremely interesting about climate change, um, if you just think of it in the nature of the problem, uh, it's a major global problem that's very likely to have significant impact probably over the next, I'm going to say, two to 300 years. So we're, we're in a completely uh, unprecedented type of problem. We've never really had a problem like this to talk about before, um, and it manifests itself in lots of different ways in lots of different countries. So I think our language is actually a bit um, lacking. 
Um, so the, the, in a sense, in answer to your question, you, you put forward various propositions like, is it too late or have we got two years or 12 years? Um, actually, all of these different things can be true in different ways. Um, and and, and uh, uh, long story short, um, it's an enormous problem. Um, it's not as bad as something like full-scale nuclear war, which probably would kill humans in, in a year or two. Um, it's, it's, just a, it, it's just a very serious problem um, and one that we, we really need to address. But I mean, I could probably give you more granularity uh, on, on some of the specifics. So when you say, um, yeah, I think it would be useful maybe to look a little bit at that because a lot of the conversation is about the timeline and I wonder in CDP and in your own life how you face this question of the timeline and also, also how we work with a sense of urgency and at the same time have the relaxed spaciousness we need to innovate. Yeah, that's, that's a super well put question, Roman, I mean, because I think in a sense that's a lot of the heart of climate change. And... Um, uh, I mean, the first, the first thing I would say is that people find climate change extremely difficult to, to cope with at a personal level. I suppose I did, actually, uh, when I first kind of came across it. Because you're really presented with three options. Either uh, you, you uh, completely change your life and sort of stop flying around the place and, and uh, you know, eating beef and all the rest of it. Or you uh, live with horrible contradictions. Um, or you deny it's a problem. Those are the three. <laughs> and... Um, I think probably the environmental community, uh, to some regard, have not done a very good job of, of helping people manage those three choices and, and, and deal with the contradictions. Um, I remember I spoke to someone I, I very much admire um, about climate change, and I said, in a sense, our work in this generation is the first act of a sort of four-act play. And I remember she said to me, yeah, and, and act two ain't gonna be pretty. <laughs> so there's definitely trouble uh, present now in the world in terms of extreme weather. There's a lot more coming. Um, but humans are very clever. Uh, we have fantastic technology uh, and we're really capable of organizing ourselves. Um, I was quite impressed recently with um, the in inspiring US Congresswoman uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and she's put forward this Green New Deal and, and she makes the, um, makes the metaphor with World War II. She says it's a World War II situation. And I, I actually, when I got into climate change, I studied World War II a bit and, and Churchill's sort of inspiring speeches and stuff. But for example, um, the charity I've been working on is a relatively new climate change charity, and we're, we're 19 years old. You know, World War II was, was four and a half, five years all in. So in a sense, we've got a global crisis, but it is a multi-decadal crisis, and that's what's so new about it. We have to, in a sense, uh, find a way to combine urgency with, um, uh, with, 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 with continuity. And, and, and certainly, as we say in this organization's colleagues, it's a marathon and, and not a sprint. Right, and I noticed that you're, you're studiously avoiding, maybe very wisely, trying to put a figure around how many years we have to do that within. Yeah, well, let, let, me, let me give you um, a very personal response to that, um, which, which is not the, the one of my organization. Um, having, having had a, a, basically a couple of decades to dwell on this, um, I would say uh, really absolutely nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> What, what we have done um, is, and the reason why people will talk about 12 years or, or, or something like that, is we've, um, we've, there's been a political definition of, of, of our goal, which is staying below two degrees centigrade. And this is quite important because the original uh, 1992 framework convention on climate change said the world must avoid dangerous climate change, but it never defined what dangerous was. So there was a sort of uh, loosey-goosey character to that. 
but I think it was in 2009 or 2010, governments agreed we must stay below two degrees. And that then um, helped the scientific community, uh, particularly the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a kind of, in, yeah, it is what it says it is, scientists from different governments. They came up with a budget to keep us below two degrees. And then uh, if you think of a carbon budget, how much more we can, how much more carbon, uh, greenhouse gases we can emit, you can then sort of say, well, what, what would we, how would we have to reduce to, to sort of avoid going over two degrees? And that's where this, this 10 to 12 years comes from. Uh, and I think uh, probably, uh, because I'm not a scientist, I would say that uh, uh, they're probably pretty much approximately right. Um, but the Earth system is, um, is highly complex uh, and therefore uh, things could be um, slightly better than we thought. They, they could be a lot worse than we thought. And uh, that's actually uh, where we get into the sort of realm of insurance. Uh, that is to say that uh, one of the reasons why I think um, uh, insurance experts will tell you we should take climate change very, very seriously is not so much because we have certainty of, of the risk, but actually because we have uncertainty, that's much more reason to take it seriously. Right, thank you. And maybe we could talk a little bit then about, you said at the very beginning, we can all get engaged with this, like who really has the power to make a difference? I know you work at corporate levels, I also know you work a lot with citizens empowerment and shareholders. And Do we all have power or if, where are the levers of power to make a difference at this time? I was doing a little bit of kind of academic study and um, go back a long time, I think it was maybe John Locke talked about the, the Leviathan, uh, the idea of a state, um, you know, traditionally in the form of the sovereign, the king, queen, or Caesar or someone, um, that the forces of a nation combined um, through a, a sort of super citizen um, who, who maintains the rule of law and critically is responsible for protecting us. I, I think that's been the political model really since, since, since we had politics. Um, it's evolved into more complex notions like uh, democratic states. But what I think is absolutely critical about the 21st century is the rise of the corporation essentially as a political unit. And I'll give you an example of, of what that looks like. Um, there's, there's a rather good blog from the World Bank that points out that of the 100 largest economies in the world, if you measure them by government income, um, only 33 are countries, 67 are corporations. And actually, you know, corporations are, are, are really the dominant actors. The thing about corporations are, on the one hand, the board of directors would seem to have a lot of power. Uh, they could put a, a $5 billion uh, factory here or, or a $5 billion factory somewhere else. That's a lot of power. Uh, but, but if they're, for example, a car company, they just sort of make cars. And it's quite hard for the board of directors to say, oh, we should, we should do something very different. I mean, perhaps they could make electric cars, but their, their room for maneuver uh, is, is, is somewhat limited. If the board of directors thought that, that this car company should actually just plant trees uh, in an emergency measure uh, to mitigate climate change and, and spend all the, all the money the company had, uh, probably the shareholders would get rid of them. So, so you know, you've got to ask yourself, who, who's really got the power? And I think that the, 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 the short story is that power is highly diffuse in the 21st century. And I mean, I'll, there's one story, for example, which, which I'm not entirely sure how accurate this is, but Toyota was a, is a big, well-run car company. Uh, and because of that, they produced a, a, a wonderful hybrid car called the Prius. Now, I have been told anecdotally that certain senior figures in Toyota didn't take the Prius very seriously. Um, but uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, the Hollywood movie actor, got, got concerned about climate change. And he, he bought a Prius and then many other Hollywood stars uh, bought a Prius. Um, it had that wonderful, it has that wonderful thing that sort of tells you about energy on the dashboard and, 
it's almost like uh, the, the car where the driver sells the passengers. Anyway, it became the third best-selling car in the whole world. Uh, and what I think is it's a subtle combination of, of a good company producing a good product, being picked up by influence makers, um, it having certain marketing features in it, and kind of catching the zeitgeist. So in a sense, I think power is perhaps best revealed in those sorts of processes. Yeah, that in a way leads us into a question about leadership. As you know, this, this series of podcasts is about leading in a climate change world. So maybe you could talk a bit about what would characterize the type of leadership, be it corporate, be it political, be it community, civic. Like what kind of leadership do you think we need? And also maybe you could surface a few examples of what you have experienced as great leadership at this time. Yeah, well, I mean, you're a, you're a real expert on leadership, Robin, so I feel a little bit, uh, you, know, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> the, the um, you know, one form of leadership, and this is a very simple uh, example. Well, there's an old definition, sort of joke about leadership. Leadership involves work, working out where everyone's going to go, uh, running there in advance and shouting over here. <laughs> um, and, and of course, one of the things that, that that allows you to do is to get there a little bit quicker. Um, I've been very struck recently uh, after, after seeing huge waves of um, uh, industrial uh, activity around renewable energy and then huge waves of industrial activity around electric vehicles. Uh, I'm now seeing a huge wave of industrial activity in terms of food and future food. And there are companies, um, Impossible Foods is one, they make a, a plant burger. Uh, which is um, storming London. Um, and there's, there's a burger chain called the Honest Burger Company. And I've spoken to a couple of the managers there. The plant burger is selling, uh, you know, 20 to 25% of their burgers are now this plant burger. They've redefined, um, so to say, vegan food as better than meat. So it's so meat eaters like me, to be honest with you, go and buy the plant burger because we prefer it to meat. Now, the, the, the food scientists who got together and could see that it was worth investing millions, perhaps tens of millions of, of, of dollars or euro or whatever in developing um, the, the, the taste that would really be able to take on meat. I would call that uh, a kind of um, uh, technological leadership or, or, or an entrepreneurial leadership. Um, so, and billions of dollars are going into these food companies. Within existing companies, uh, I think that leadership uh, is, is, is sometimes a bit harder to find. But for example, uh, there's, a, there's a rather wonderful company called Schneider Electric. It turns over about 24 billion euro a year, a big company. And uh, I had the privilege to meet the chief executive about uh, nine, 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, he just said, I bet the company on climate change. <laughs> Everything we do is going to be climate change related. And Schneider Electric essentially sells energy efficiency, uh, you know, renewable energy, and, and, and so on. There's that big companies like Axiona. Um, have, have decided we're going to just be the, the premier wind and solar energy developer in the world. These companies are doing extremely well. Orsted um, has redefined itself entirely as a renewables company. So I would say those are examples of, of corporate leadership in existing business where, where you really just reposition the whole company and say, uh, look, I can see the future and we're going we're gonna to own this. And one of the arguments that sometimes comes against that is from people saying, ah, oh, but we can't, do, we can't do the right thing. Like sometimes I've heard it said in business, we can't do the ethical thing and the right thing because it won't maximize our profits. We have a legal obligation to, to our shareholders to maximize our profits, even in the short term, the next quarter, the quarter after that. So how does this kind of leadership take account of its fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits in the short term? And that, that, that's, a, that's a great question. 
And I wouldn't say fiduciary responsibility is to maximize profits in the short term. I'd say it's to maximize profits. <laughs> just, just, just to make that distinction, because you very often you are looking at um, capital in, uh, in, uh, investment. Um, so I, I mean, I, I have toyed with the idea uh, if I ever wanted to uh, escape the sort of poverty that that that, <laughs> that prevails in, in in a job like mine. I mean, I, I get paid a reasonable salary, but if I wanted more money and I went to a corporation, I would, if I was senior enough, I would want to go to the shareholders first and say, "Look, friends, we've got a plan here." Um, we're going to reposition the business from A to B. Um, we're going to have to invest a lot, and uh, you know you're going to see possibly uh, you know uh, uh, increased increased capital expenditure in in you know 2019 through to 2021. But I think you're going to see we believe you're going to see stellar profits from 2022 to 2025. Uh, but, but that's the that's the investment case. The other part of your question is um, how do you know it's going to work? And and the key here is. Um, I want to go back to one of the very first principles of business. Um, I heard a definition once of marketing, uh, which was giving people what they want. Now, you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, people won't pay any more for green. And I think, um, why would you pay any more for green? It sounds like a stupid idea. Uh, but people certainly pay more for Gucci or for Bentley. <laughs> you know, uh, people will, will pay more for things that they want. People, people will go, go to fine restaurants. People wear fine clothes. People are very happy to spend more uh, if, they, if they want to. And that's the thing. In a sense, you know, having, having spent about 10 years in corporate communications, corporate marketing, I concluded that, well, it's a rather clumsy title, but sustainability product marketing is the absolute key. Um, so it could be, um, for example, that your electric vehicle is actually less expensive than a petrol vehicle. And it, it's really worth looking uh, at the at the energy costs of of powering an electric vehicle against the petrol vehicle, so you may well be able to sell electric vehicles, saying it will save you money. Uh, but perhaps uh, because there's a lot of discretion, and I'm just going to carry on with the car analogy. Perhaps there's a discretion to say, well, we're Tesla. We're going to sell you a fantastic car, and it's going to cost more than a normal car. But you want that, don't you, Robin? So it's it's essentially. Um, it's, it's a part of business that's often overlooked in discussions about sustainability, is, is getting the business case from the customer uh, to deliver what they want, even though it might be a premium product. That's great. And I know that you've also done a lot of work, <clears throat> excuse me, with, with um, shareholders and getting shareholders to ask the right questions and put together coalitions of for, forward resolutions about disclosure and other things. Maybe you could tell us one or two kind of case studies around how shareholder activism has started to really impact on the deliverables for the corporates. Yeah, well, I think a really good example of that is probably around coal. Um, so, you know, Coal is typically burnt to produce electricity all over the world, um, a lot of coal. And um, companies involved in those processes, you know, may have concerns about climate change, but they just kind of think, well, customers want to buy our electricity, so we're just going to buy more coal. Um, the financial community are able to have what uh, a, a co-founder of CDP, Tessa Tennant, used to call a bird's eye view over the whole economy. So they can sit there, you know, a pension fund or a big, a big fund manager can sit there and say, huh, there may be coal being burned uh, uh, here and there, but collectively burning coal because it produces the most greenhouse gas emissions of any fossil fuel has kind of got to stop. 
So there have been a number of shareholder resolutions against major coal manufacturers saying, get out of coal. And there have been numerous uh, efforts by shareholders to persuade banks to stop financing coal. And essentially, coal, you know, coal has become very hard to finance now. Uh, and uh, an atmosphere has been created by shareholders such that um, coal is, it, it just doesn't make business sense anymore. And it is declining substantially as an industry. Something similar has been happening with unconventional oil recovery, the so-called tar sands, where you have to use a very large amount of energy to boil up kind of sludge and turn it into kind of oil. Again, these sorts of, uh, these sorts of operations have been receiving negative press from shareholders. And, and I'm gonna call it an aggregate level, a communication from shareholders saying to management of companies, you've got to stop doing this. And actually the pennies dropped. That's good to hear. And um, I'm also now starting to think about where we need to put our focus, because I know that in the history of CDP, for example, you've moved from focusing on carbon and then you've included water and forests. And this, is, this isn't a CDP related question, but more generally, like where do you think, where are the next frontiers that we also need to address? And what's the leadership that's going to take us there? Well, um, and I do know you know uh, CDP well, Robin, because you've been kind of consulting to us and facilitating us for a decade or more. But um, you'll also know uh, I organize events sometimes at Fintorn, and uh, um, uh, my friend Nick Robbins, um, who's a very distinguished uh, climate change economist, I suppose, and uh, he he, uh, he conducted the UNEP inquiry on a sustainable uh, financial system. He was former head of climate change at HSBC. He's recently taken a position uh, as a professor at the London School of Economics, studying what he's calling the just transition. And I think what, uh, you know, I hope he'll forgive me speaking for him, but, but what, what I believe he's most interested in is uh, the risk we face that if uh, responding to climate change is associated with uh, you know, unemployment, um, Donald Trump did extremely well uh, in, the, in, in the 2016 election, by, by putting on a kind of a hat, like a miner's hat, and saying, you know, Trump digs coal. There were lots of banners um, saying Trump digs coal. And of course, uh, the, the Democrats, uh, Trump's opponents, have been very much associated with kind of shutting down the coal industry. So the frontier that I think Nick is pioneering, this just transition, is to say, look, um, there are industries like coal where, uh, you know, essentially we, we probably have to stop producing coal. Uh, but that doesn't mean that if you're a coal miner, uh, your brothers and sisters in, in society uh, just wanted to kind of put you on the, on the scrap heap and, and, and let you fend for yourself uh, through poverty. And, and uh, you know, particularly because coal mines are quite, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're located. It's the, 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 the workers are located in these towns. If there wasn't a coal mine, why is the town there? You know, uh, and so I think that the, the social issues, wealth inequalities, to be honest with you, um, and their impact on our politics, have become increasingly an important part of climate change. It seems like they're totally separate things, but, but oddly enough, if, 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 um, if, to give you an extreme example, uh, the, the Paris Agreement of 2015, which is critical for us on climate change, was to a degree uh, created by the United States who used their enormous international power uh, to help achieve it. Then the United States themselves pulled out of the agreement they created, uh, in part because the new president uh, was put there by, by nervous coal miners. So you can see how these social elements actually become critical to the international efforts. Right, so 
Yeah, I'm just thinking where, where we want to go now. We could go in lots of different directions, I think, with this. So, so we want to broaden into justice and the just transition. I'm also wondering whether climate change is really still seen as a bit of a niche or whether it's really your, your sense is that it's becoming mainstream. I was working for an for a energy company recently and they were, the, the, the CEOs had a vision to transition to sustainable energy systems. But a lot of the business, this is a huge multinational company, but a lot of the people that we were working with are saying, yeah, but I'm running a coal generating, uh, you know, coal fired station over here and we're doing gas over here and we're gonna, this is where the profits are and advising people on how to reduce their energy usage or to produce their own, which is part of what this company is gonna start to do, providing services and not energy directly, isn't gonna make us the money. So there's this kind of gulf between the leadership saying this is where we're going to go and people saying, well, we're just going to carry on with business as usual for as long as we can get away with it. And I wonder what your sense is about whether climate change is still in a way a niche obsession for people who care about it or whether it's in the mainstream. And again, relating that to leadership, maybe you have some examples of places where it started to become part of the DNA, not just at the leadership level, but it's rippling through the kind of largest corporations or the largest cities or the largest entities that you're engaging. Well, no, that, that, that's, that, that's a great question. And it's, it's a very difficult question. Um, I think one of the advantages, you know, it's a huge privilege for me to work full-time on climate change for, for 19 years. And in that time, I've had the opportunity to see just the public debate go from sort of zero to what feels like 100 miles an hour. You know, in each year, another five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour. Uh, I remember when I started uh, in doing this work uh, in the Financial Times, it would say, you know, oh, greenhouse gas emissions or CO2, which some people say is linked to the idea of human-induced climate change. You know, now I see on the front page of my newspaper all the time, you know, senior politicians, business people saying climate change is number one problem, we've got to act, you know. Um, so there's definitely, you know, there, there are sort of ups and downs, but the trend is more and more interesting climate change, there's no doubt in my mind. I mentioned one of, of two new leaders a moment ago, uh, which was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 28-year-old um, US Congresswoman. But I'd also particularly like to, to draw um, your attention to the 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, who in six months has gone from complete obscurity to having four and a half million references to her on Google. And um, she is, you know, I was, I was describing to a friend of mine how um, we've been waiting for the alarm clock to go off for, for decades. And it's actually gone off in the kid's bedroom, but it's woken the whole house up. Right? And, um, you know, I, it's, it's the stupidest thing, but it's actually true. Um, people who are 16 have got much more at stake in this than, than you know, someone uh, our age. Uh, and I think that that's important because, you know, there is a, there's a kind of crazy dysfunction where on the one hand, a parent's lavish attention on their children and, you know, nothing's, nothing's too good for my child, right? But then on the other hand, they just don't think about climate change and deliver actually their children into a into a very sinister environment potentially so um i think uh people like greta uh are, are really fundamentally changing things far more than we might realize now in terms of organizations that have really taken this on 100 percent um i think that that's there's perhaps two there's two ways an organization can take things on one is um at a, at a kind of like operational day-to-day -day level and um 
you know, I can think of many great companies where, um, you know, climate change is built into a L'Oreal, for example, the, the, the cosmetics manufacturer. They, I mean, they take uh, climate change extremely seriously. Um, they perform very well in our evaluations. I mean, some people will say, well, it's easy for them because they're not making steel or cement, but um, there's significant amounts of energy and, and, and materials involved in, in L'Oreal production. Um, and so I can, I can see a company like that really um, taking um, on climate change at, at sort of every level within their existing activity. Um, but I think what's interesting about a company like Orsted is that it's said, well, we, or, or indeed your, your client that you mentioned is, is here a company saying we're, we're actually fundamentally changing our strategy. Like L'Oreal is still basically going to make cosmetics and, and other products. Whereas, whereas some companies say, well, actually, um, we're really part of the problem with our current mix of products and we're, we're moving to the solution. And um, perhaps the, 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 one of the really good examples that sits between the two is also um, Unilever, which has really taken on um, the mantle of saying, well, we're going to do both. We're going to kind of reduce um, uh, you know, uh, environmental impact from our products and services, but we're also going to redesign our products. And that's probably the key. It's, it's actually uh, doing everything you can about your existing products and then having a product map uh, that will take you to, to, uh, to a sustainable future. Um, so I think, yeah, those, those are companies that, that spring to mind and are, and are very widely regarded. And just one thing that I think is super interesting and, and worth noting is that a couple of years ago, Unilever became the subject of a hostile takeover bid from Kraft Foods and uh, this, this uh, uh, Brazilian conglomerate, which I, call, I think is called 3G. And um, their, their plan was to kind of cost strip Unilever and increase profits, which I'm sure they would have done for a year or two. But actually, since this failed takeover bid, um, Kraft shares have kind of plummeted, Unilever shares have done really very, very well. And what that tells me is that, um, yes, you have to kind of invest in sustainability and redesigning your company. Um, but if you take your, your, your citizen customers with you, uh, that's a great thing. Uh, just a little bit of framing before I forget. You know, people will say, well, who's running the world? Is it the governments or is it the, the board of directors of the companies? I'm actually going to suggest that the sovereign in the whole system is the citizen. And the citizen, uh, she or he, um, votes in two ways. Uh, when they buy things, they're voting with their money. And when they invest, they're voting with their money. And those two uh, votes there can actually change the direction of the whole thing. And that's, and that's, that's how you kind of close it out, is if you take them with you uh, in, in your journey, then it's good for them, it's good for you, it's good for the planet. Great, and I think that's a great way to close, actually, because it gives us all a sense of being empowered as citizens, that, that we can vote when we buy, we vote when we invest, we can make a difference to the system as a whole. So unless there's anything else you want to add as a little coda, I, I think we're, we've had a great half an hour, and I really want to thank you for your time and your expertise and for your passion and your commitment to the cause. You know, you've been working, as you say, for, for decades on this issue, well before it was fashionable. And uh, thank you for that, and thank you for your time today. Anything you want to say by way of closing, Paul? Um, be brave, because it's time for bravery. And uh, that bravery will be rewarded. And just to say thank you so much, Robin, uh, for the, the time. Yeah, thanks again, Paul. Bye for now.